Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, church. It's good to see you all on this beautiful day. My name is Sean, and I am one of the pastors here. And since Pete is on sabbatical, you're stuck with me today. Uh, Apologies for that. But uh, in all honesty, we have a great team of folks who are going to be speaking into our community this summer. We had guest speakers like Matt Sorens last week. We've got a great lineup of guest speakers, as well as hearing from all of the pastors on our team. We have such a great team of voices uh, with different perspectives, and I really can't wait for you to hear from all of them throughout the summer. As for this week, we are in the sixth Sunday of Easter, the season of Easter, last seven Sundays, so we are nearing the end. In just a couple weeks, we are going to celebrate, celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And by way of a brief recap, we have been in the book of Revelation throughout Eastertide. And when we kicked off Revelation, we offered up a, a primer on this often overlooked, often misunderstood, and definitely super weird uh, book. And we talked about what type of book this is. We talked about it being an apocalypse. We talked about being prophecy. We talked about it being a letter. We talked about the different ways of approaching and reading Revelation. We looked, showed this chart a few different times that uh, there are a couple different ways in which you can interpret the book of Revelation. And, and we think the most helpful and responsible ways are firmly on the lens side of that chart. Uh, focusing on the political, poetic, and pastoral nature rather than the preterist or predictive methods. Along the way, we've made pit stops at the throne. We've uh, seen it surrounded by angels and creatures. We've talked about the lamb and the great multitude. And now we are entering the final act of this powerful narrative. As you heard uh, Gary read the text today, we are in Revelation 21 and 22, and we're going to close out the season of Easter and the book of Revelation next week with the last few verses from this book. And these last two chapters of the book of Revelation, they really serve as kind of a, a triple terminus because they are the end of this book of Revelation, they are the end of the New Testament, and they are the end of our entire canon of Scripture. So these chapters are very important. But before we dive into our text for today, I want to read the passage from Revelation that we skipped over last week uh, with Matthew. Again, we don't do that to our guest speakers, make them do Revelation, but it It provides some helpful context for what we're going to talk about today. So, Revelation 21, 1 through 6, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
So this is the context for today's passage that then talks about this new heaven and this new earth. And part of what makes this such a unique text is how it concludes the biblical story. Because the biblical story, it begins as it should and totally making sense. It begins with the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But now as the biblical story draws to an end, it ends with another beginning which doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, And so what we'll see is that this story that begins with creation as its first word also has creation for its last word. So what we wanna do is we're gonna look through this text, we're gonna point out a few insights to help us understand the big picture message of this passage of scripture today. Like Gary said, our text today begins with kind of a one-off verse from a few verses before, but it helps put us in context. Revelation 21.10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We see here is that we are watching kind of a divine construction site. We're, We're being put in position with hard hats to witness the culmination of God's plans for humanity. Throughout scripture, mountains are are seen as thin places where the veil between heaven and earth is blurred. And from the vantage point of this mountain, where John gets this revelation, we see that ultimately the mountain is coming down to us. And the verses that the lectionary skips over today describe this new Jerusalem, this heaven coming down to earth. And this new Jerusalem, we've talked about this before, but it serves as a contrast to the oppressive city of Babylon, which for the listeners at this time was the city of Rome or the empire of Rome. That this new Jerusalem is God's alternative to the Roman empire and subsequent iterations and incarnations of this type of empire, this type of Babylon across history, places where violence, oppression, greed, and selfishness have the last laugh. This new Jerusalem is described in today's measurements as 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. And, you know, these three distances, or these distances were about equal to the entire Roman Empire as John knew it. So what John is saying here is that this new Jerusalem is large enough to encompass the entire known world. It's also a perfect cube, right? It's 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. The ancient ideal of perfection, especially for a city, was a square. But John goes one dimension further, that's a pun, uh, literally, and he makes it a cube because the holy of holies in the temple, the place that signified God's complete and unfettered presence, was a perfect cube as well. And John notes what is absent from this city. There's no sea, which is the symbol of chaos and evil. There's no death, no tears, no mourning, no crying, no evil things or people, no sun or moon, but also no night, no closed gates, and most conspicuously, no temple. Chapter 21, verse 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This would have been a big shock to the original listeners that that John was writing to in the seven churches. But what John is preparing them for, what God is preparing them for through this vision that he's given to John is that he has something in store that is even better. The temple in Jerusalem was a down payment of God's great hidden plan in the cosmos. It was a signpost of the unthinkable reality that much of scripture points to, which is at last now realized in the complete presence of God at all times, in all places. 
In this city, we also see that the nations and, and the kings are present. That throughout the book of Revelation, these, these groups have been described as hostile to the way of the Lamb, that they have shared in the idolatry and the economic violence of Babylon. They've sought to oppress God, his purposes, and his people. But their presence is a fulfillment of the words from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 60, it says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It keeps going on. Actually, the book of Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah chapter 60, has all types of references that are referenced by John here. But these nations and these kings, they have been redeemed and reconciled into God's great kingdom. And as we get into chapter 22, we see that this city includes both the river of the water of life and the tree of life. The water of life represents God's generous love as the source and the goal of all things. For John, how could the city where God and the Lamb are personally present be anything other than the great wellspring of life, flowing out to anybody who needs it? And on either side of this river is the tree of life. It's been redeemed from its role in the story of Adam and Eve in the beginning of Genesis, and it now is offering healing to all nations and to all people. As we begin to think about the big picture ideas from this passage, I wonder if I might ask you a little trivia question, okay? It's not Bible trivia, so don't worry if you're nervous about that. Uh, I know we have some big time kind of old school church song and, and hymn fans in the room, you know, H-Y-M-N. I can never say that word very well. You know, when, when Great Is Thy Faithfulness comes on, and you're like, okay, this is my jam. I know there's for some of you guys. Do you guys, does anyone know what is considered to be the most recorded gospel song of all time? Amazing Grace, that is a great guess, but wrong. Oh, any other guesses? Jesus loves, Jesus loves me, no. It is the old gospel tune, I'll Fly Away. Yes. Oh yeah, okay, all right, you guys like that one. All right, okay, okay, yes. Yeah, Johnny Cash has a version. It was originally written by Albert Brumley in 1920 times, been since re-recorded hundreds of times, maybe most famously by Alison Krauss and Gillian Welch as a part of the soundtrack for the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Maybe you guys saw that movie. It's a great flick. Uh, it's often a popular song at funerals. And this is a dangerous ask, but I'm going to take a risk here because I'm a terrible singer. But I wonder if we might sing just a few verses of that song together now. We're not going to call the band back up here. We're going to do it a cappella. I know you know how it goes. Gary's up here. He can lead us, okay? All right, are we ready? I think we might be have a slide. Yes, okay. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to that home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Oh, very Give yourself a round of applause. Very good. Very good. Very good. Well, for Albert Brumley, the, the individual who wrote this song, uh, there was certainly a desire to get out of the strain from his life. He was the son of a sharecropper. He spent his days picking cotton in Oklahoma. This, again, this was written in 1929. 
And so the meaning of this song isn't really hard to identify, especially for Albert. It is centered on leaving this life for the next one. His life circumstances were very tough, and he was ready and prepared to get on to the next one. And as we ponder what we think about heaven and salvation, we often tend to think the same way, that it is about getting out of this place, of getting out of this body and joining God. That at the end of this life, you know, our souls will be able to cast off the weight of this physical world in order to find ourselves free in a spiritual one. Maybe we've been told that that is the whole point of salvation. After all, we follow Jesus so that we can get into heaven up there. Our souls can be God, with God forever, that we'll get to that celestial shore and never look back because that's where the good life really is. And this type of perspective that many of us have been taught about heaven, or maybe you've, we've talked about the fancy term eschatology or just where we go after this life, this mindset is known as an escapist mindset. This perspective basically takes the stance that the earth and everything in it is a sinking ship or maybe more apt a burning building. And if it's all gonna burn, and that doesn't matter at all because our true home is in heaven. I never expected to say these words, but Mark Driscoll, uh, um, <laughs> uh, many of you may know from the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, he is famous, or I might better say infamous, for saying, I know who made the environment. He's coming back and he's going to burn it all up. So yes, I drive an SUV. And what Mark is illustrating here, again, I never thought I'd quote Mark, but I guess we'll, we'll, we'll call it even. Um, what he's illustrating here is that uh, if we believe that there's going to be a future escape from this world, then we usually have a corresponding flight from our present responsibility to this world. If heaven and the new earth are far off and they're someplace else, then there are no consequences to how I live now. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. We've also maybe been told that, that we aren't made for this physical world, that we are made for a spiritual world of heaven. Our bodies are bad, but our spirits and our souls are good. We've maybe been told this is what Christians are supposed to believe, but really that idea doesn't come from scripture, it comes from Plato. The early church fought against this duality between physical bodies and, and souls or spirits there was a heresy called Gnosticism, but it worked hard to reject this duality that the soul is good and the body is bad. Or in the context of place, that, that heaven is a perfect world and that earth is a shabby, second-rate, temporary dwelling that we can't wait to get out of. And part of the problem with this perspective is that it doesn't really deal with the reality that we've been immersed in materiality from start to finish. And not material, you know, as in materialism and loving possessions, but like literally we are composed of matter. We're physical beings in a physical world that from the very beginning of creation, God created us out of the dust and our lives take place here amongst the created world. While, while the world and everyone else may make the mistake of making everything material and only material, as Christians, we often make the mistake of making everything spiritual and ignoring the physical. 
So if this is our backdrop as Christians, that we tend to think of our bodies as bad, the spiritual world as good, the created world of earth as bad, and, our, and, and heaven as good, we need these passages in Revelation to wake us up to what God is actually doing here. Because both our text this week and last week show us that at the end of the age, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And not only that, but a new Jerusalem, the holy city we see time and time again as a forerunner in Scripture will come down out of heaven and be established here on a new earth. That through this vision that John receives from God, God wants to make it clear where our true home is. And it's not up in heaven with, the, with God and the angels. It's actually the other way around. Our home is here and God is coming down to us. The physical world is not bad. In fact, God describes it as very good, but it is in need of redemption. Whether it is here in Revelation or throughout Scripture, it is clear that God's kingdom will be established here on a renewed earth. Now, so that is one set. The escapist mindset is one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum, when we're talking about eschatology, uh, let's call it the activist perspective. Basically, this perspective says, you know, all of these great things that are coming with the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth, the, the end of the oppressive empire, the nations and the people coming together, the end of poverty, death, sickness. People on this end of the spectrum believe and live as if human effort can and will usher in this utopia. That, that we can deal with the empire ourselves, that we can create a new world of life where all of these things are true if we just try hard enough, if we just do more. And as it often is, I believe God is calling us into a third way, one that avoids the escapist mindset on one end and the activist mindset on the other. And this way involves seeing God's plan of redemption and reconciliation for our home. And when we see that the, t the texts say that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, it doesn't mean the destruction and replacement of our current material world. It means that there will be a transformation. That the paradise that is depicted in Genesis is not abandoned or destroyed here in Revelation. It is restored and redeemed. And it might be better to describe it as a renewed heaven and a renewed earth rather than a new heaven or a new earth. And, you know, I lived in Waco for seven years, so I know a thing or two about fixer-uppers, okay? And uh, I think what we see here is this, this isn't a tear-down, okay? We're not knocking the whole thing over and building something new. This is about God taking the earth down to the studs, clearing out all the junk and grit and grime, and giving it new life, of restoring it. It's God saying that the hope of Jesus isn't about somewhere else. It's about right here, and so what does this mean for us? If we, if we know what the future kingdom is going to look like, so it's described here, what do we do now in the present? Well, it starts with beginning to recognize the reality of heaven that is here today. Elizabeth Barrett Browning is a poet, and she puts it like this. She says, earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The more that we understand this, we begin to see that we enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place where God has placed us. As much as 
We may like this song. You guys all cheered, right, with I'll Fly Away. Maybe it's been meaningful to you or your family or, or maybe a part of a funeral setting. Like, it can be a very powerful song. We also have to recognize that we aren't just here on this earth so that one day we can fly away from it, that we can leave everything else behind. I have a pastor friend of mine named Phil, and he talks about it like this. He says, we need to begin by imagining the world that we yearn for, the one shown to us by Jesus, the one shown to us here in Revelation, and, and begin by seeking to further it now. Eugene Peterson says, heaven is not a purple passage tacked on to the end of the apocalypse to give flourish to the rhetoric, but immersion in the reality of God's rule in our lives that has the effect of reviving our obedience, of fortifying us for the long haul, and encouraging a courageous witness. We have to find the middle ground between the escapists who say it's all gonna burn anyway, so what's the point, and the activists who say we can do it all on our own. We must seek the help of the Spirit as we work in light of this expected reality of this new heaven and new earth. And it's your task to figure out the unique role you have to play in the building of that kingdom. Famously, Frederick Buechner says that the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Where is that for you? When you think about the coming kingdom of God, this kingdom where there is no death and no homelessness, no disease, no racial enmity, no violence, no war, no environmental destruction, what can you do today to work towards that reality, not on your own with the help of the Spirit? There is an old rabbinic saying that says, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And when you look around this room and see each of our six practices, you see that these practices are realities in the coming kingdom of God. Communion is how we abide in Christ. It's how we recognize God's presence. In the future kingdom, there is no temple because God's presence is everywhere. What can you do today in your life to commune with God, to experience his presence? Formation is how we become who we truly are, who God created us to be. We move from ignorance to awareness. In the future kingdom, we are fully aware of who God created us to be. We are formed completely in the image of Christ. What can you do today to make that a reality? What disciplines or, or practices or experiences need to become a part of your life to be formed into the image of Christ? Community is how we share life as a family. In the future kingdom, we are in a, commu a committed community with everyone, no matter their past or their history. How can you live that life of community today? What do you need to change about your relationships? Who do you need to begin a relationship? Do you need to join a group? What can you do to live into community, God's future community today? Hospitality is how we show love to the stranger. In the future kingdom, God's love is so alive and active, there are no strangers. How can you make that kind of hospitality a reality today? What can you do in Bend, in your neighborhood, here at Antioch, to demonstrate the hospitality of Jesus to those around you? Sabbath is how we live the unhurried reality of God's love and his presence. 
In the future kingdom, there, there's the eternal Sabbath. It's where we live and worship and work in rhythm with God. How can you make that kind of Sabbath a part of your life today? Maybe it's working less. Maybe it's prioritizing time spent away with God, getting outside or caring for creation. How can you make that future kingdom a present reality? Injustice is how we worked with God to set things right for all people. And when you think about the future kingdom, what sticks out to you? Are you struck by everyone having a home in the kingdom of God? Then engage in the work of ending homelessness here in Ben with Jesus' love here and now. Are you moved by all nations and people living together as one? Then you might start by working towards ending systemic racism in our country or supporting the work of nonviolence, the ending of wars, global peace. Are you struck by the absence of violence? Especially in light of the horrific violence in Buffalo a week ago, how can you put your energy today towards stopping gun violence in this country? Do you focus on how the kingdom is free of environmental destruction and that life and water and trees grow abundantly and provide healing to all peoples? Start with creation care today in how you live and what you consume and the policies that you support by caring for and supporting local farmers. We always talk at Antioch of our mission to join God in the reconciliation of all things. And this is what we are talking about, that in this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, we see the completion of the reconciliation of all things. But until that time, our work and our task is to join God in this work by bringing our unique gifts and passions and, and working to begin building that kingdom today. We make the bricks and he sets them. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. God is calling us to live as kingdom-minded people here and now as we give a foretaste of the reconciliation of all things. We won't accomplish all of this ourselves, but that is not and never should be the goal. Instead, we live as an alternative community shaped by the reality of the new creation and the promise of the fullness of God's renewing of all creation. We bear witness to God's future kingdom in our present reality. We begin to see God's face more clearly as we do this, and we experience heaven here and now, and so do those around us. We see that creation find, finds its completion in a new creation, and that this ultimately creates in us a desire to bring about the kingdom of heaven together with the Spirit. And so when I think about this section of Revelation, the end of the book, this book of the Bible, I'm no longer scared or weirded out or uncomfortable. Instead, I'm filled with hope. Really, I am. I'm filled with hope. Hope in God's kingdom of restoration and reconciliation and hope in the part that God asks us to play. 
that we get to be a part of it and hope that the Spirit helps us along the way. And so Antioch family, may we be a kingdom-minded people, not seeking to escape this world, but a hopeful people who join in with God in the reconciliation of all things and lay the building blocks of God's future kingdom today. Now, Pastor Kip is going to come up and lead us through the practice of communion.